Genesis chapter 22, and we're reading the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, Bortiba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mecca. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, do what only you can do through it. Open our eyes, teach our hearts, instruct us, and help us to see the majesty of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. By the time we arrive at adulthood, most of us know that life isn't easy. That the easy life is a myth. 
that life is full of trials and challenges. This is something that it just doesn't take long to learn. We might be protected or buffered from it in our younger years, but as we grow, we realize life is hard. And as believers, we know that we haven't been promised an easy life. Although some of us may have had that experience where well-meaning Christians came to us and said something like, you know, trust Jesus and all your problems will go away. Uh, that's not what Scripture teaches, nor is it, I think, any of our experience. If anything, Christians are more aware, both the fact that we live in a fallen world, we're aware of the effects of sin uh, in our own lives and the effects of sin in a broader context, but we also understand that we can suffer for the name of Christ. We also learn in Scripture that trials are given as a means to mature us in the faith that God uses trials to grow us, to strengthen our confidence in Him and how we should walk in obedience. This isn't some kind of sadism that God enjoys inflicting pain on us. But it's the same kind of fatherly love that any parent knows, that there are hard things sometimes you have to do to get your kids to get it, to help them understand, to let them Feel the burn of the asphalt from taking the curve too wide on their bike when you've told them over and over and over. And then they learn. That's what mom and dad meant. Or our joke in the house, we've told you over and over that the, that the stove is hot, don't touch it, but you just have to go over there and touch it. Not that my kids do that, but, you know, we make that joke in our house. So, God knows how to give good gifts, and He is good. And trials, the things, the difficult things that we experience in life, do not undo God's goodness. In part of a sermon about prayer, Jesus said the following, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of Him? James echoes this same sentiment, but he adds some further explanation to it in James 1. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, God does everything consistent with who he is, consistent with his character. There is no variation, there is no shadow due to change. And because 1 John 4 tells us God is love, we know that everything He does, everything that He allows in His sovereign control is motivated out of that love for His children. And that means both the good things that we enjoy and the trials that we face are for our good. They're for our benefit. That He is up to something. That He is working toward something. As Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know that this is in part our benefit in this life, but there's also, mysteriously, some benefit that awaits us. That there's something that is yet to come that we don't quite understand. We look through a veil, uh, a glass dimly. right? We don't see exactly what God's up to. We don't understand all that He is doing and yet, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even imagine what is awaiting for us. 
And so while we cannot see goodness in every trial, and I would say that there are some difficulties we go through that we can't see goodness at all, God is still good. And this is so fundamental for us as believers to understand as we face difficult things in life. It doesn't mean that good things will only happen to you, but God is always good. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when we, the quote from Narnia, he's, he's not safe, but he's good. It means God's not tame, and he works in ways that sometimes puzzle us, and he allows us to go through severe trials that make us scratch our heads, that make us ache, and yet he doesn't stop being good. It's who he is. And so this is important for us this morning to keep in mind as we come to this trial. Familiar passage to many of us. Now, the challenge with familiar passages is what can we see or learn that we haven't learned before? But if you're anything like me, you need to remember. And Scripture tells us over and over again to remember. So verse 1 begins, after these things, we know that when Moses, the narrator, uses that phrase, after these things, it means some time has passed. He doesn't tell us how far we've gone into the future from where we were. Isaac was just a wee boy, uh, a weaned boy, uh, aged two or three years old. And now he is at least an older boy, possibly a young teenager. Again, we don't know. But we see some interaction between he and his father that indicate he's got some understanding of what's going on. And the narrator tells us that God tested Abraham. So it's important for us to understand what God is up to here, although I can tell you God didn't tell Abraham that. And the reason I can tell you that is, it doesn't say that in the text, but it would completely undo the purpose of a test to tell someone you're about to test them. Uh, you know, we, we, it would, if you want to see someone's reaction to pulling a snake out of a bag, I guarantee you it will be very different if you tell them, I'm about to pull a snake out of a bag, especially me, if you do that to me. Um, I will put on some dance moves that you have never seen if you surprise me without telling me that you're going to pull a snake out of a bag. It would undo the purpose of the test. God didn't tell Abraham, I'm about to test you. Now go and sacrifice your son. But Moses tells us that. So it's important for us to know. Abraham is summoned by his name and he responds, here I am. We see this phrase in this passage more than once. This humble submission who he is before God, reminiscent of a young Samuel when he was first summoned by God, reminiscent of Isaiah when he was summoned by God, here I am. And God says, take your son in verse 2, your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. There is zero ambiguity in what God is asking of Abraham in this command. And it's interesting that, um, you know, if you're thinking, like, why did God do it this way? And why did Abraham respond the way that he did? I mean, I don't know of a father who could pull this off. It's puzzling. And yet we see God very clearly state to Abraham what he's commanding of him. And Abraham, by the account that, that we're given in Genesis, do nothing but obey, respond in obedience. 
He's told, take Isaac, your only son, meaning your true son, the son of promise, the one that I promised that you waited so long for. Not Ishmael, the son that, that you accomplished by your own means and through your own ends, but, but Isaac, your only son. He's to take him to the land of Moriah. Again, this is a three-day journey away. This is three days to think about, to contemplate, to feel the weight of this trial all the more. The next time you're in a pattern of waiting on God, saying, Lord, why don't you answer? Why don't you provide? Why don't you remove this thorn in my side? Why don't you heal me of this? Understand that waiting is one of God's greatest tools to discipline our faith, to perfect our faith, to complete our faith, that we might see that it is genuine. Today, Mount Moriah sits in the middle of where Jerusalem... Well, Mount Moriah sits where today... Jerusalem is. This is the area that he was going to. So Beersheba, several miles south, he travels north to this area. If you have ever traveled to Jerusalem or seen pictures of it, you know there is an iconic building in Jerusalem that is in any picture that you see that you know that you're looking at the city of Jerusalem. The Golden Domed Mosque. If you didn't know, that is a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It sits on the Temple Mount. It sits on Mount Moriah. And so you can understand then some of the tension with this history that lays in in, in the background of a history that's unfolding even to this day, a tumultuous history. That as you're looking at where once the temple stood, and this is where God told Solomon to build the temple here on Mount Moriah, that that flattened foundation, that Temple Mount, is where this mosque sits. If you another iconic image from uh, Jerusalem would be the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. You've probably seen pictures of it, which it's a sacred, holy place for Jewish people where they go and pray. That is at the base of the foundation of the Temple Mount. So if you were looking at the Western Wall and you got in a helicopter and you went straight up at the top of that wall. That's the bottom of the Temple Mount. You'd be looking across at that Golden Dome Mosque. So you might have thought when you saw those pictures separately that those were two entities that were far apart. But as Jerusalem, uh, and in Jerusalem, as Jews are coming to pray, they're coming mere feet from where Muslims gather, who also hold that Abraham was sent here to sacrifice a son, but it wasn't Isaac. They teach that it was Ishmael. So this is an incredible piece of history for us to understand our current history in terms of what's happening in the Middle East. This is where it all started. So God tells Abraham to take his son to Mount Moriah, the place where Jerusalem would be one day, and there to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And so in verse 3, what do we see? Abraham gets up. He goes. He prepares for the trip. And with Isaac, as well as two men, he takes and he leaves. And we can only imagine what was going through his head. What was he thinking? With every step that he took, there's no indication of protest. There's no indication of defiance. 
He simply obeyed God. And then on the third day, verse tells us that he sees the place where they're going. And here he tells the two young men to remain. And he says to them, we will go, we will worship, and we will return again to you. It doesn't maybe say that in your English translation, but that's what it actually says in that each of those verbs is modified by the first person plural. And that's important to understand because what Abraham is saying is we, plural, will go, and we, plural, will worship, and we, plural, will return to you. Abraham didn't know. He didn't know what God would do. He didn't know how God would provide. He simply knew that God had commanded him and he would obey. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 17, tells us why Abraham could make such a claim. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham was trusting God in this very difficult command, knowing that God was powerful enough to keep the promise. Because what was the promise? It was through Isaac that your descendants would be blessed. So God has said to him, it's through Isaac that I'm going to give you the promise, but go and sacrifice him. And Abraham trusted God to do both of those things simultaneously. He didn't know how God was going to provide. But he trusted him to do what he said, even though in his mind and in your mind and in my mind, this seems impossible. And so Abraham takes the wood and he lays it on Isaac and he carries the knife and the fire himself and they go along together. And Isaac asks his father in verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Again, we don't know the age. You might hear that question as a, Eight-year-old boy or a 16-year-old boy, I, I, I don't know the answer here, but I think there's at least an indication that Isaac had some understanding of several things here. He understood sacrifice. He understood that there should have been something to sacrifice. He asks about it. He knows it's missing. And Abraham responds to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, in verse 8. Where does God, or where does Abraham place his trust? God alone. God's going to provide. I don't know. I don't see. I've been asked to do this incredibly difficult. It's an understatement. I mean, this mind-numbing, just crazy thing. And yet I'm trusting God to provide. God will provide. He knows what's needed. He knows Abraham. He knows Isaac. God knows and understands. That's what Mount Moriah actually means. The word Moriah means God knows, God sees, God understands. And so when Abraham now brings this idea of God's provision to this, this, this element of God's understanding, we see something formed for us that is essential to our doctrine of God. That God is not just a God who's all-knowing. That he isn't just a God who sees and understands everything. But he's a God who is able to provide. He not only knows what you need, he has the power and the means to provide for that need. That is essential as we face trials of various kinds. That we know that God is good, that he loves us, and he has the power to provide. 
Upon arriving then, Abraham builds the altar. He lays the wood on top of it and he puts Isaac on top. If you notice in verse 6, uh, verse 8, and then again in verse 19, the phrase, they went both of them together, is repeated those three times. And in this whole episode, we see this kind of harmony between father and son. Again, we don't know Isaac's age, but why didn't Isaac run? Why didn't he fight with his dad? Uh, why didn't he just take off and wriggle away? I mean, Abraham was an old guy at this point. Why didn't he just run away? So there's a sense of Isaac walking with his dad in obedience, modeling his dad's obedience to the father. Something incredible to think about. And in verse 9, the narration, if you notice, slows down for us to see each obedient step. It says, Abraham built the altar. And then we see the conjunction and used. And laid the wood. And bound Isaac. And laid him up on the altar. Each painful step of obedience. Again, we can't imagine. The steps to Moriah would have been painful enough. And now to follow each of these steps of actually doing this seem impossible. And then in verse 10, he raises the knife, it says, to slaughter his son. Abraham was clearly going to obey. Something that none of us can even imagine. And yet, it is hard not for us to think of our Heavenly Father who did not stay His hand, but He did lay down His Son's life for us. That on the altar of the cross, there would come a day where the wrath of God would be poured out on Christ for your behalf and for mine. An incredible sacrifice that we would be forgiven. But here the story would be different. Midair. Abraham hears his name called not once but twice. Abraham, Abraham. The angel of the Lord stops him midair. And he says again, here I am. He is commanded not to touch Isaac or to do anything of harm to him. And then his eyes are immediately drawn. There in the thicket is the provision. A ram with its horns caught in the thicket. He takes it and he sacrifices that instead to the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says to him, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Does God need to put us through trials to see if our faith is genuine? Think about that. God knows everything. Does God need to put us through trials to test our faith? He's all knowing. In fact, we're told that faith is a gift from God. And yet, he takes and puts Abraham through this trial and says, now I know. Is the benefit only for Abraham or only for God? But no, it's, it's for Abraham. See, Abraham's faith is tested for Abraham to see that the faith that God has given him is genuine. It's tested for a testimony to us, for sure, but it's a testimony to Abraham. And so when you walk through difficult things, and God tests your faith through difficult things, He is showing you that the faith that you have is genuine. It's real. The faith that He's given you as a gift, it's the real deal. Because how many of us, not that we'd ever admit this on a Sunday morning, but how many of us struggle in our faith? 
struggle to believe, have moments of doubt, certainly that may only be in seasons of life. Some of us may struggle all the time with that. And God takes us through trials to show His loving hand that our faith is genuine. But it also, as it was with Abraham, becomes a testimony for others to see as well. James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Is James undoing everything we're taught about salvation by faith alone through grace alone apart from works? No. But what he's saying is that our works demonstrate our faith. He says that in the end, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith, but his faith demonstrated itself in works. You can't claim a faith that is dead, a faith that doesn't have works. Our faith will have works, but our justification is by grace alone through that faith that is demonstrated in works. It's never by the works. Don't take that and flip that back around. That's not the way it works. Our works don't justify us before God, but our works demonstrate the justification that is ours by faith according to God's grace to us. His actions demonstrated his faith. It was an incredible lesson for Abraham. It's an incredible lesson for us. Think of all that Abraham's been through. We've walked with Abraham now through Genesis quite a bit. We've seen the ups and the downs. We've seen him fall on his face a few times. And God is taking him and carrying him along and growing him in that faith. God has been reiterating the promises to him, and here he does it again. Abraham has struggled, but here at Mount Moriah, Abraham witnesses the grace of God in his life. He believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so here he gives the name of this place, Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. His words speak to God's faithfulness, not only in Abraham's life then, but also in the years to come. You see, Mount Moriah would be where Solomon would build the temple, where sacrifice after sacrifice would be made one day in that temple on this same spot. Those sacrifices pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come as Jesus, carrying the wood himself on his own back, would walk up the hill to Calvary to die in that once-for-all sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. The angel of the Lord then repeats the promises of the covenant to Abraham. By myself, he says, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the east seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God swearing by himself, something that doesn't happen among the patriarchs again. And yet it's repeated through Scripture as a reminder of how significant this was. Hebrews chapter 6 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. All the promises are still in place. The blessing, the offspring multiplied, the land, the nations of the earth being blessed. God is going to do everything he said that he would do. And this is for us today as well. To know that God keeps his promises. That the covenant has not changed. That he continues his everlasting love 
demonstrated through his plan of salvation in the gospel. All of his promises will come true. He's made us his own, bought with the blood of Christ in that final sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And because we have confidence in him for who he is, that he is good, we can face the difficulties that come to us in this life because God can be trusted. He's good. He's up to good. He's working together for our good, those who are loved and called according to his purpose. Again, the writer of Hebrews, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a, great, having become a high priest forever. So Jesus now our high priest forever who has gone before us, who has accomplished the ultimate sacrifice, now puts that on display for us in this table. That we might come, that we might come to remember, that we might come to proclaim, that we might come to be nourished and fed in our faith. The table is a call to all of us, every person in this room. If you are not a believer, this table is a call to saving faith. We're warned not to come to this table and treat it carelessly. We're not to come to this table apart from faith. So if you are not a believer, don't come. Don't you know, let the elements pass by. Don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. And yet if you're not a believer, hear that today is the day of salvation. God stands ready to save. He has offered in His Son, Jesus Christ, the only way that you can be made right with God. By faith, just like Abraham, you can trust God and be credited with the righteousness that is Christ through his death on the cross. That righteousness getting applied to you and to me. So it's a call for all of us. And for us as believers, this table, this table is the nourishment to carry us through the fiery trials of life. Because there is no greater proof that God is good than in what is demonstrated in this table. That no matter what you have faced, are facing, or will face tomorrow, this table demonstrates God's love toward you and His Son Jesus, that He willingly laid Him down, that you might be forgiven. Galatians, or I'm sorry, Romans 8-2, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, that we would know what the picture that this call to sacrifice Isaac was something that you would actually do with your own son one day, that you did not withhold your own son, but graciously gave him up for us that in Christ we might be granted all things, things we can't even imagine. So, Lord, as we walk through the fiery trials of this life and we think at times that life isn't worth living or that life is over or that there's no hope, would you bring us back to this and help us to see 
that you did not withhold your only Son, that you will then give us all things. Lord, may we long for the goodness that you wait to show us when you pull back the veil and you, and you demonstrate the, the completeness, the fulfillment of all that is ours in Christ. Would you use your table today as you use your word in our hearts to lead us into deeper faith that we would walk in the same obedience that we see in Abraham, willing to obey whatever you call us to do. Always looking to Christ in faith, knowing that it is in faith, the gracious gift by your grace, that we were saved, that we are held today, and that we will be delivered safely to you in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.